Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you've been worshiping with us regularly in morning and evening, uh, you'll note that we're actually in one of those interesting seasons of life where we're about to catch up with our Sunday evening series and overlap. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Dahl, uh, has been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount and has, over the last, I don't know, year and a half or so, kind of micro-exegeted almost all of the sermon text for today. So... As part of that, I've tried to tackle a large chunk of Scripture so that I'm not simply just uh, retilling the same land that he's already covered. Uh, We'll see if that was a good decision in about 30 minutes. Uh, It might be a bad decision, and we'll find out then too. Uh, But we're at least going to try to tackle a large chunk of Scripture, uh, recognizing that Jeremiah has done a great job for us in the past. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. If not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said... Sorry, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder... And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that, of, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, take your tunic. Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would give life and light to our minds and our hearts as we seek to understand your word. You have spoken from heaven. May we hear, understand, and believe. For Christ's sake, amen. The last uh, two days have been supremely important days in American history. As we've watched our president nominate uh, a new Supreme Court justice. It's an important time for our country, and you missed the joke of the supremely important time, but it's a supremely important time in our history. And not simply for the reason that you think. Certainly Supreme Court justices are important, and uh, I'm not talking about the politics of whether or not uh, you like his nominee. That's not important to this sermon. It is important, however, that this is one of the very few times in American culture where we actually begin to think about one element of life that was extremely important to the Jews. This is about the only time I can think of in the American culture where it is normal, common, and acceptable for us to have a discussion about your philosophy of law. What is your philosophy of law? And you're going to hear this uh, a lot with the conversation taking place around President Trump's nominee or whoever else anyone else might want instead of her. Uh, Whether or not does she pay attention to the words of the Constitution or does she pay attention to the meaning, the intention of what the writers wrote? Which is more important, what the text says or what it might have meant? Which is more important, what the original authors intended or what the current reader might understand? 
You see, those are really important questions. Which wins out? The text or the intention? You know, the classic, don't pay attention to what I say, pay attention to what I mean. Or is it, no, what, what you say is what you mean, whether you like it or not. Is it important for what they meant back then or today? When is the, the timeline important? What is the horizon of the text? And all of these questions, now, they're questions we're beginning to see take place. Uh, you can see them on Fox or CNN or any, of the, any cable network right now, uh, are all really questions of hermeneutics. That's technically the term. Uh, it's the, the process of understanding a text. The interesting thing is they play an incredibly important role in how you see the law. And interestingly, while it's a part that we very rarely ever talk about, unless you're working on a dissertation in this field, you never think about philosophy of law or philosophy interpretation or things like that. It is something that the Jews talked about regularly. In fact, actually, it was a common part of their, uh, their identification as humans. In fact, we hear two common terms thrown, around, thrown about in the New Testament. We have Pharisees and we have Sadducees. At the core of what made Pharisees Pharisees and Sadducees Sadducees were different commitments on how they read the law. That's all it really came down to is some of them had commitments to say, no, we believe the entirety of the law and we mean it uh, specifically as it is written. And another one said, we believe part of it with the larger intention, but we understand it within the confines of today. Miracles don't happen today. We don't believe in miracles anymore. They have very different philosophies of the law. In fact, actually, we can go through and track throughout Jewish history largely the way that their culture developed at this point in history was uh, your spiritual edification was kind of largely connected to which rabbi you listened to. And a rabbi was just a teacher who taught you the law of God, but interestingly, the primary thing that he taught was his school of understanding how the law worked. His hermeneutics for the law of God. Does it mean what it says or does it mean what it meant? Does it mean what it meant back then or does it mean what it meant today? Answering all of these questions, that's what your rabbi taught. And it's therefore unsurprising that here at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, he's beginning to address the questions that a normal rabbi would have needed to talk about. What do we do with the law of God? What do we do with the Ten Commandments? What do we do with God's commands for his people? Now, Jesus challenges it very interesting because of what he's already covered kind of in his Sermon on the Mount and what Matthew himself has been framing out. Jesus, obviously the high king, He's begun his ministry in Matthew chapter 5, framing out what kind of people are members of his kingdom. What are the the values and the ethics of his kingdom? And it's uh, largely been these spiritual conditions. People who are poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, a, a spiritual condition. 
Then in verses 13 through 16, the previous section, we noted, and this is key, that he, he began to identify his people as saying, look, you are in your essence, in your nature, in the very being of who you are, you are transformed so that you are different than what you were before. If you are a member of the kingdom of heaven, you are present, active, indicative. You are currently the salt of the earth. You've been changed. If you are a member of the kingdom of God, you are currently, transformatively, you are the light of the world. Right? Not future tense. You will become. Not subjunctive. You might be. You could be. You might possibly one day be. No, currently, presently, you already are transformed. That presents a really interesting challenge because then you could say, well, then what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the Ten Commandments? What do we do with the law? If we're already changed, if we are already going to be salt and light because we are already currently salt and light, what function does God's law, does God's word, do the Ten Commandments and such, what function does it have in my life? And you know, that's actually an important question because it's a question that many Christians today still wrestle with. And uh, if you don't believe me, you ought to talk to a brand new Christian. A person who's come from outside the faith and has really kind of stepped inside Christianity for the first time and they begin to wrestle with the things that many people who haven't grown up in the church you know, haven't thought about. And they're like, well, what, what, what does the Old Testament serve? What purpose does it serve? I mean, if it was just there as kind of a you know, foreshadowing, why is there so much of it? Why would we not have more Jesus and less Old Testament? What purpose does it serve? And interestingly, we know that we as human creatures are not creatures that are prone to balance. If you don't believe me, just watch any newscast for about 15 minutes and you'll see that we as humans are prone to extremism as much as we can because it makes us feel good and comfortable and special when we can hold that view. And interestingly, Jesus in verse 17 through 20, this first paragraph that kind of frames out his approach to the law, deals with these various kinds of extremism. So what he's going to do here, we're going to look at two correctives or two uh, problems that he addresses and then kind of some of the examples that he's going to give. First problem, the natural imbalance, the natural tendency that the human heart will have is to look at God's law and say, yeah, I got this. (laughs) Yeah, I got it, man. I, I got this. I got this thing figured out. I nailed it, right? I mean, last time I checked, I, I haven't worshipped any, you know, graven images this week. I haven't made a golden calf. I don't keep one hidden away in my closet. I'm, I'm nailing that one, right? I haven't done that. I, I haven't murdered any of my neighbors this week. Maybe last week, but not this week. I'm good to go. I haven't stolen my neighbor's ox. I haven't stolen his wife. I'm good to go, right? I haven't done any of these, you know, over-the-top sinful things that are obvious. I'm keeping God's law. In fact, that was a very common position, and Pharisees struggled with this immensely. They had taken the law of God and tried to create kind of buffers around it so that they had intensified and increased God's law to this spectacularly large checklist that they thought was then a manageable thing that they could live. 
Which is why later in the, the Gospels here you have these interchanges where Jesus deals with a young man and says, well, what do you need to do? You need to keep the law of God. And he says, I've done that since I was a child. Right? I've kept the law. I've, I've obeyed it perfectly. I've, I've never sinned. I'm managing the Ten Commandments just fine. And this is, at its very core, the idea that I can manage God's law and I can find my value in its keeping. This is, as I've joked before, in many ways, the heart of the American understanding of, of morality. Why, Christian, should you go to heaven? You should go to heaven, they say, because I'm better than my neighbor. I live a better life than my neighbor. Have you seen how they keep up their yard? Have you seen how they keep up their house? Have you seen how they parent their children? Have you seen the school their kids go to? Of course, they're bad people. I'm better. I've got it figured out. Interestingly, this is the heartbeat of most religions outside of Christianity. To give a checklist that can be managed, that if I check off these boxes, I can call myself a good person. And of course, you can see the danger with this is that it lets you feel very good about yourself, but it it keeps you from thinking about Jesus at all. I mean, it makes no sense of our order of worship. Why would we have a confession of sin if I've got God's law figured out? Why would I need Jesus, in fact, if I have God's law figured out? Why would I need a Savior if I'm not in need of saving? Uh, This is one thing that I have found to be the most interesting, I think, over my ministry is you you learn the the five points of Calvinism, and as you come out of seminary, you're thinking, okay, what am I going to be the ones that I'm struggling with? Is it helping people understand election? Is it helping people understand the atonement, how Jesus paid for sins? Is it helping people understand that that God preserves his saints? No. It's amazing that, you know, in almost 20 years of ministry now, the, the biggest struggle is helping people understand that they're a sinner. Because the primary American kind of relationship with the rules is to say that we're good people and we have it figured out. It's in fact actually the byproduct of telling people that they're special. If you constantly tell someone that they're special, that they're special, that they're special, that they're special, that the interesting byproduct is to say, well, the rules don't exactly apply to me the same way because I've got it all figured out. I'm a good person. I've already managed life. The problem here, obviously, is that it's not understanding the fullness of the law of God and and how deeply it reaches into the human soul. That's one imbalance is to say, I've got it figured out. I've got the law mastered. I'm good to go. The second uh, problem, and certainly an imbalance on the other side, is to say, well, the law doesn't matter. I don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. I don't have to worry about the Old Testament. It doesn't matter. Right? We have got Jesus. I have grace. Nothing else matters. I don't have to worry about how I live. I've got forgiveness. This is a problem in the early church. We know Paul has to address it. Uh, shall we go on sinning so that grace shall abound, so that grace shall increase? Well, by no means. Shall we just act like God's law doesn't have any sort of importance today? 
This is, again, a very common uh, problem inside the church. And from my limited experience, this is anecdotal and not, you know, by surveys of hundreds and thousands of Christians or such. But this is, by and large, I think the younger generations struggle. The older generations in the room tend to have a little bit more of kind of the, the legalism. I've got the law mastered. It's a part of me and I've got it. I've grown up in this, you know, uh, culture that has been a largely kind of conservative culture. The, the younger generations are growing up in this largely kind of disaster of a culture and don't really care about the law at all. Don't really care and say, I have grace. It doesn't really matter how I live. And it, it produces a very cavalier attitude towards sin. Like, sin doesn't matter. Right? I've been forgiven by Jesus. Sin doesn't matter. Why would it matter that I sin or not? I'm, I'm covered. The cross has me covered. And in doing so, it takes the death of Christ quite loosely. Now, what Jesus does interestingly here is he's kind of framed out, I think, both options. Uh, the, the one category saying, look, uh, verse 20, he's the corrective here. Look, you think you're perfect. Well, unless you live in complete perfection, that's not how you enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven through your own works unless you've lived with a perfection that is complete and total. Verse 48 highlights that. Therefore, you must be perfect as God himself is perfect. That's the kind of perfection that is required to enter heaven on your works. If you're going to go on your own merit, you can try it, but you have to be as perfect as God is. And guess what? That's not going to work. Or verse 17, this is again framing out the other side. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't come think that I'm saying, look, here's grace, here's forgiveness. Therefore, the Ten Commandments never matter again. Don't think that just because grace has entered in, because Jesus is redeeming a people for himself, that the Ten Commandments don't matter, that God's law doesn't matter. Instead, we are uh, to fulfill our Christian duty in living according to God's holy commands. Now, it's easy for us to kind of deal with that in theory. Right? And that's a conversation that can be had, an a abstract philosophical conversation about how do we interpret law. That's partially what's happening in our current culture as we discuss um, the Supreme Court justice nominee's uh, philosophy of law. The reality, though, comes when we begin to discuss it in the specific where we take a specific topic and begin to discuss that philosophy of law in regards to that. And in fact, actually, that's the one that we're really watching happen right now, isn't it? Uh, what's uh, Ms. Coney Barrett's uh, philosophy of law in relationship to abortion? Right? That's the dividing line currently happening in our culture, a, taking a specific case, uh, a topic, and looking at it in terms of hermeneutics. Jesus does that here, uh, looking at specific cases in addressing kind of both of these mistakes, to say that I can either be moral enough to go to heaven in my own merits or to say that the law of God does not matter. First topic, anger. Now here he's addressing both of these extremes, but highlighting them and answering them, I guess, quickly and carefully. Look, for those of you that say, I can, I'm a good person. I've, I've got it figured out. I don't ever sin. I, I haven't murdered anyone this week. I'm fine. In fact, I may have never murdered anybody ever. Well, how does Jesus begin? For those of you that said, heard it said, you shall not murder, what's the answer? Well, here's the trick. Murder is the external component. 
Anger is the internal component. If you're guilty of the internal component, you're guilty of the external. Right? And murder is how it works out amongst your hands. Anger is how it works out inside your heart. If you want to say, I've never murdered a person, you have to therefore be able to say, I've never been angry with a person unjustly. Well, obviously, none of us can say that. At least I can't. I know you can't. And we've all been angry when we shouldn't have been. We've all, at some point, looked at the driver in front of us and said, what are you doing, you fool? Now, maybe you didn't use a word that nice. Maybe you used a stronger word that we can't use in pulpit language. But at some point, some of us have said, what's that idiot doing? Or my sermon last week, what's that moron doing? Where we throw out these terms of sharpness and hate toward one another, where we're showcasing our anger in our heart and highlighting, just look how far we've fallen short of God's holy law. The interesting thing, though, is that Jesus doesn't just leave it there, but in all of these, he takes a little element of it and turns it on its head in a way that you wouldn't expect. He explains the anger part the way that we would expect, but verse 23, he kind of turns it on its head a little bit. So if any of you are in the process of worshiping God, And you're bringing your offering to the altar to meet with God. And there, while you're meeting with God, you remember, now interestingly, not that you're angry. That's what you would expect. If you're going to meet with God and you realize that you're furious with somebody, you need to go forgive them. That's what we would expect. That's not what he does. If you're there worshiping God and you remember that your brother is angry with you. It's on you to go reconcile. Whoa! That's far bigger than I would have expected it to be, Jesus. I I would have expected you to say, look, you can't be angry without reason. You can't be angry without cause. Instead, what does he say? Look, what does it look like to be holy in this relationship? Well, it means not just dealing with your own heart, but dealing with your relationship with your brother or with your sister. Now, again, I would kind of lovingly poke at us here. We are a people that by and large live a life that, you know, we don't, most of us, I assume, have gross and negligent sin where everybody can kind of see constantly like, oh man, you're an absolute mess or whatever else it is. Uh, This section, verses 21 through 26, I think highlight one of those socially acceptable sins. Where we can say as Christians, well, I mean, they're just an angry person. I just struggle with it. I just struggle with this. Or even worse yet, where how many times have we watched verses 23, 24, and 25 been ignored inside the church? Brothers or sisters that know their brother or sister is furious at them, but they refuse to there go and fix it. And I've been making this point for weeks now, but I'm going to continue to do so today, hoping that if the steady beating of a drum finally drills into all of our skulls, as we move, Lord willing, in the next matter of weeks from two services filled with lovely and beautiful and holy people into one service with more lovely and beautiful and holy people, the opportunities for us to be angry are going to increase exponentially. I mean, you don't even get to go to worship at the time you want. 
I'd break it to you, they don't either. We've changed the time altogether so nobody wins. There's going to be so many opportunities for us to complain and to have that secret anger burning in our heart and to most likely for us say something to this effect. Well, I've been forgiven by Jesus and I just don't have to deal with my anger right now. I just don't have to deal with that sin right now. I just don't have to actually worry about it. And friends, that's that second imbalance. That's the person that's saying Jesus has come to abolish the law, that the law doesn't matter anymore. We can ignore it. I don't have to deal with my brother or sister that's furious with me. The next section, he then again deals with the heart. He addresses adultery. And again, it would be easy for many of the Pharisees to say, look, I'm keeping God's law. I'm not having extramarital affairs. I'm not dealing with other people's spouses or single people who are not yet married. I'm living my life in a way that would be chaste. And what does Jesus say? Well, then uh, let's have real talk. It's not just a sin of the hands. It's a sin of the heart. What's the sin of the heart? Well, lust is the issue. That same as with murder, it's a sin of the hands, but anger is the sin of the heart. Lust, adultery is the sin of the hands. Lust is the sin of the heart. Now, uh, you expect, okay, that makes sense. He's, he's called us out. He's caught us out. We you know, feel rebuked appropriately. But then in verse 29, he turns the entire conversation on its head. For those of us that might be tempted to say, well, sin isn't that big of a deal. I mean, Jesus is forgiving me. I've got the cross. I have the blood of Christ to forgive me. Sin isn't that big of a deal. Let's see what Jesus says about it. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Well, that's unexpected. I mean, that's a little bit shocking, is it not? That Jesus would say, no, sin is such an important thing. It's actually more important than your body is. Now, I'm not going to encourage you to go, you know, blind yourself, cut your hand off, or follow Origen, one of the fathers of church history who actually castrated himself in an attempt to follow this. Uh, he found out that sin did not reside in the body. It resided in the heart. And even after losing parts of his body, guess what? He still struggled with lust. You can't get rid of it like that. Sin resides in the heart. Interestingly, though, Jesus is framing out for us how important it is. Dealing and resisting sin is catastrophically important. And as I, I meditated on this this week, just thinking like, again, at where do we see this in the, in the church today? Where do we see Christians that treat sin so seriously that, like, losing appendages is actually a viable option? Like, we, we don't ever think about sin that badly anymore. I mean, again, we think of it as more tacky or just inappropriate or like, well, that's just not a good way to live. It's bad for you. We've lost the seriousness of sin. We've lost how uh, grievous it is to God. We've lost how absolutely world-alteringly evil it is. We just don't care. And if you disagree with me, let's look at the next one. 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, uh, part of that is the culture in which they live. Divorce was a very easy thing. At some points in Jewish history, uh, this is not made up, I wish it were, if wives burned their husband's food, their husband could divorce them. Now, some of you would have been divorced very rapidly. I would not be divorced because it's never been burned, but some of you might have. My wife's in here. Um, But it was an easy thing. Fidelity didn't mean anything. Uh, Therefore, marriage didn't mean anything. Therefore, divorce didn't mean anything. It was easily transacted. It was easily accomplished and uh, treated with very great casualness. Jesus, in verse 32, turns that conversation on its head. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He is here actually framing out how marriage works and he's laying it out and saying, guess what? You better choose your spouse well because marriage is for life. You can't get out of it as a Christian. It's not one of those, oops, I woke up and I think I married the wrong person. That's, that's not a conversation we get to have. That question is a paradox. How do you know the right person to marry? Well, if you're married, you already found that person. Might have exercised some better judgment along the way, but you already found that person. You cannot get out of it. Now here, what is the the grounds for getting out of it? Well, uh, adultery is what dissolves the union of the marriage. It's what dissolves the marriage and it it gives the out. Now, interestingly, Paul is going to make a commentary on this in 1 Corinthians, and he's going to agree to it. He's going to add one more caveat where he's going to say, well, that's for Christians. If there's a non-Christian that wants to get out, well, non-Christians aren't bound to our laws, and so they can get out. It doesn't surprise us when the non-Christians behave like pagans. They are pagans. They follow their own rules. They're not bound to the Scriptures the same way that we are. That's going to be his caveat. But the, the background is this. Marriage is only dissolved on grounds of adultery. And unfortunately, you can see how much the church, again, today has kind of said sin isn't a big deal by how we interact with divorce. Now, the statistics are not what they would have you to believe in saying that divorce is just as common inside the church as it is outside the church. That's a total lie. It's far less common inside the church, particularly evangelical church, but it still exists. And again, it's something that we oftentimes hear not being that big of a deal. There is, however, a part of this verse that you probably have not caught, though you've read it dozens of times. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. That's a really shocking pronoun there. It's not the one who divorces his wife, except on grounds of adultery. He commits immorality. It's actually, interestingly, it's making her. And what he's framing out here is to say, look, marriage is such a big deal. 
that when it gets broken, the sin is far more grievous than just simply the breaking of the marriage. There's all sorts of contamination that takes place. There's all sorts of transgression that takes place. It makes her to commit adultery because she's going to remarry because in this time, that's her only way of having provision for when she grows old. She will remarry and she will sin and he will remarry and he will sin. And I love how, boy, man, you want to have a conversation. You want to actually, you want to really get Christians today, get their hackles up and make them angry. Try to have a conversation about this text and watch how many loopholes are introduced. Well, how come Jesus didn't deal with abuse? Well, how come Jesus didn't uh, deal with a spouse that just hates his, his wife? How come Jesus didn't deal with X? How come Jesus didn't deal with Y? It's amazing, again, how we see the natural human relationship to the law is one of rebellion. We don't like the law, and we want to introduce as many ways around it as we possibly can. Now, divorce is the easy one to pick on because it's so cut and dry, and we really resist it so much. But how about for anger the same way? How many, how many loopholes we introduce to try to make our internal kind of monologue be acceptable? How about for lust, how many loopholes we introduce in our own men, uh, mental monologue so that it doesn't seem like we're quite as evil as we actually are? No, we are creatures that resist the law of God constantly. Oaths, I'm not going to spend the time here. It's be a person of fidelity. Don't get tricked into the fickle nature of sin. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The retaliation one is shocking. I mean, it's just downright shocking. If someone persecutes you, pesters you, bothers you, inflicts pain on you, do not defend yourself. This is another one of those passages that I I love that it's so clear. We all understand it. There's very little part of the grammar or even the cultural context that we don't get. Yet nobody actually wants to put this one into practice. When someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the left. If anyone, in verses 40 and 41, are largely within the context of the Roman government, if the uh, part of the Roman uh, relationship with their uh, citizens, but largely their soldiers, they were allowed to kind of have a temporary tax where they could, we could say, borrow some of your stuff. Uh, you want to talk about uh, government infringement of personal rights. This is pretty much it. Uh, they could take your stuff, and that was legal, and they were allowed to do that, and they could force you to kind of do it. So here, they want to take your uh, tunic, they're allowed to do that. Uh, So instead of just giving them that, offer the cloak as well. So you're stuck in your skivvies, but they've actually got a proper outfit so they can go about their business. Uh, If they want you to, they could make you carry their luggage for a mile. They were allowed to do it legally for up to a mile. Any soldier could say, hey, you know what? Right now, my pack's too heavy. Laura, let's go. You're carrying my pack. Really awkward, really inappropriate, but Laura has to take it up. Let's go. Was Jesus offering? Instead of saying going one mile, which is the legal limit, offer a second mile. Go two but I thought the government's supposed to respect my rights. I don't like the government. I don't like the government. 
Interestingly, what Jesus is laying out here is what does it look like? Well, so much of sin is about self-protection and earthly-mindedness. It's protecting my rights. It's protecting my privileges. It's protecting my comforts. It's protecting me. So much of it is about protecting me. And it's intriguing how God's law, the heart of it is it's God is the one who protects you. God is the one who provides revenge for you. God is the one who retaliates for you. God is the one who is caring for you. You can't actually do it. It's why he then builds to the culmination in verse 43 and following. Look, if if you really want to put it into practice, you want to know kind of the heart of what God's law is. Love your enemies. Seek their best. Because even when you uh, are, are... At your most intense, you can't extend your life. You can't make your world any better. You you can't actually do anything to them in the long run. It is instead our God who is so generous to his enemies that he sends rain on both the just and the unjust. I mean, can you imagine that this week if you were to walk out and the rain was falling in your neighborhood and, and, you know, you could tell all the yards that were green and lush and beautiful were the yards of the Christians because all the pagans, you know, their their yards didn't get any water because it never rained from the sky. It only fell on the specific yards. That'd make a really weird walk through the neighborhood, wouldn't it? Uh, You go for a stroll and you're like, ah, it's raining there. It's raining there. It should have been raining there, but it's not. I would never have guessed that yard would get water. I mean, it would be terrible. Instead, God is laying out that he is the one who is responsible for all of this. Instead of highlighting our selfishness and self-protection, it's trusting in our God. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I mean, there was a really large amount of content very quickly and tried to cover a bit briefly. Well, a number of things. One... We need to be careful that we do not allow ourselves to quietly, subconsciously, uh, even intentionally believe that we are the good people because we keep the law of God. Now, I'm going to tell you, for those of you that maybe are converted a little bit later in life, that might be a kind of a thing where you think, how would I ever believe that? I will say this, for those of us that have grown up in the church and have never experienced life outside the church, it is a very easy transition to make. It's very easy for us to very quietly and and almost subconsciously to begin to think, hey, we're the good people because we keep the law of God. And what Jesus is getting at is your heart is a mess. Just because you grew up in a culture that doesn't do all of these sinful things quite as flamboyantly as others, it doesn't mean your heart is not a mess. So first and foremost, we as God's people need to be intentionally aware of the evil in our own hearts. Intentionally and actively aware of uh, of the perversion that that still lingers in the, the deep parts of our soul. Secondly, we need to be reminded that uh, these bits of, uh, of God's law that he's just working through here, that this is the instruction manual for how the human body, how the human life is supposed to exist and run. Right? When you buy a new piece of complicated machinery, many of you should or you, you do read the instruction manual for how it's supposed to work so that this very expensive and very complicated piece of machinery doesn't get worn out in just a matter of minutes or weeks or hours. I didn't know it needed oil. Funny enough, the motor seized up, and now it's worthless. 
These are the, the, the instruction manual for how the human life is supposed to operate and, and how to make it better and how to please the Lord and how we are to live. I would lovingly challenge you to think about your life now again anew and afresh to say sin matters. I'm not just going to turn a blind eye to it. I'm not just going to ignore it. I'm I'm not just going to say, well, it's no big deal because I have the cross. Well, you know what? It's because you have the cross that it matters. That was the sin that Jesus took to the cross. That was the reason why he was murdered in the first place. It was because of behaviors like ours. And I suspect that you will find that if you begin to cultivate kind of both of those um, thoughts in your mind and in your heart, you're going to find your warmth for Jesus grows. Because you're going to begin to realize and remember, you actually need him. And as you contemplate that, you'll rejoice in his loving kindness and mercy. Let's give thanks to God for his word. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. We have, in so many ways, violated these um, brief explanations of sin in more ways than we can count. We are a people with angry spirits, part of an angry culture. And we read, watch the news every day. We can read Twitter, any of it. And it displays our anger is constantly there, a, a, a nation of lust. You look at the television shows that we watch and we consume. There's no way to defend our own hearts or our culture. A nature that, in many cases, celebrates divorce for all the wrong reasons. With divorce being more common now than marriage sticking together, and even since COVID, up 34%. A nation that swears all the time, but its word means nothing. The people that are constantly preserving our own values, our own possessions, our own filled with hate for our enemies. And while we would love to disparage those outside, we acknowledge this is the lingering corruption of our flesh. And so we ask that your spirit would change us, that we would be forgiven by Jesus, and that we would live in light of that forgiveness, a new life, with hearts that are disposed towards obedience, not with hearts that are disposed toward disobedience. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.